The news continues, so let's hand it over to Jake Tapper in Ukraine and CNN Tonight. Jake. John, thanks so much. I'm Jake Tapper. This is CNN Tonight. We're live tonight from Ukraine's capital of Kyiv on day 50 of this invasion, 50 days of anguish, of death and destruction, but also 50 days of great determination, perseverance and hope. Ukraine still stands tonight, seven weeks into Putin's war. You know what isn't upright anymore, however? The crown jewel of Russia's navy, the flagship Moskva. It has sunk. That's confirmed by Russia tonight. Moscow still refutes Ukraine's claim that Ukraine struck the more than 600-foot-long vessel with cruise missiles off the coast of Odessa. Russian state media is still blaming an accidental fire that allegedly caused the warship to lose stability in stormy seas. The Pentagon has not confirmed either account, but two sources familiar with U.S. intelligence say they believe Ukraine's claim is credible. This is no doubt a huge defeat for Putin and his Navy, and there is something poetic about it because this ship is the very same one that attacked Snake Island on day one of this invasion and was famously cursed out by Ukrainian soldiers with the now iconic phrase, Russian warship, go F yourself. And now it's no more. It's effed. A lot more on that in a moment. Ukraine is tonight racing the clock to prepare for the coming onslaught in the east. A senior Pentagon official says the Russians have started arriving in the northern part of the Donbass region after abandoning their fight here in northern Ukraine. The Pentagon says today that they're working as quickly as possible to move that $800 million worth of additional military aid and equipment. And amid that race comes another to collect the evidence of possible war crimes being committed by the Russians. I spoke earlier with the chief prosecutor from The Hague, the International Criminal Court. He's in this country right now leading the war crimes investigation. Karim Khan is already labeling Ukraine a crime scene after visiting the towns of Bucha and Brodyanka on the outskirts of Kyiv, where some of the worst atrocities of this war have been committed. Stay tuned for our sit-down on that one. But first, to the breaking developments on that sunken Russian battleship. CNN's Fred Plykin spoke with Ukraine's national security advisor about the Moskva. He joins me now live here uh, in, in Kyiv. Fred, what can you tell us? Well, it was a huge morale boost for the Ukrainians. And, and you know, unequivocally, the uh, senior, uh, the, the national security advisor told me, yes, we shot that ship. He said it was the Neptune cruise missile, uh, land-to-sea to, to missiles that shot that ship. And, and he was quite nonchalant about it. He said, yeah, the, sh- the ship just sank. And um, I think it's a really, really important victory for the Ukrainians, not just militarily, but also from a morale standpoint from the people here in this country. And something that we saw here in Kiev today, but also what we heard from the National Security Advisor as well. It seems like a massive blow to Russia's war against Ukraine. Ukraine's forces saying they've struck the flagship of Putin's Black Sea fleet, the guided missile cruiser Moskva. I spoke exclusively with Ukraine's national security advisor. Can you tell us what happened to the cruiser Moskva? It sank, he says jokingly. Russia admits the ship has indeed sunk, but has not yet acknowledged it was struck by Kiev. Instead, it says it was badly damaged by a fire and then sunk while being towed in stormy seas. The Moskva was involved in an out-famous incident in a place called Snake Island when its crew told Ukrainian soldiers to surrender. This was the answer. 
The event has become so legendary in Ukraine, they've commemorated it with a special stamp. People at this post office in Kiev standing in line to get it. An important event happened yesterday. Our armed forces destroyed the aggressor's flagman ship. I think this event has to have a place in everyone's memory, this man says. The Ukrainians say they managed to hit the ship, which has formidable defense systems, with Ukrainian Neptune anti-ship missiles. The Moskva was still there near the Snake Island and was hit yesterday by two powerful Ukrainian-made missiles, he says. And then a warning to Putin. This is just the beginning, he says. There will be more than one Moskva. But the leadership in Kiev understands the next major battles will be different and possibly even more bloody, as Russian tanks and artillery pour into the Donbass region. This horde has invaded our country and they think we will watch them destroy us, he says. But of course, we will respond by all means we have. Thanks to our international partners, we have interesting tools. The U.S. and its allies have already provided Ukraine with billions of dollars worth of weapons and are now moving to give Kiev heavier arms to counter Vladimir Putin's tank battalions. The National Security Advisor says Ukraine needs all the firepower it can get. I would never say that the Russian army is weak, he says, given the amount of weapons thrown there, the number of tanks, armored personnel carriers, planes and helicopters. I would not say this is a weak army. I would say these are strong Ukrainian soldiers who fight back such a powerful army. And these territorial defense soldiers in Kiev are vowing to keep up the fight, their elite troops gearing up to head east. We are absolutely prepared for this. We have both fighting spirit and fighting mood. We are patriots of our country and of course we will fight back the enemy, the soldier who goes by the name Vlad the Rifle tells me. And they vow, just like in Kiev, they will confront the Russian army once again. And Jake, we've spoken to a lot of these uh, national defense forces, and there's a lot of them who are saying that they are moving increasingly towards the east. So it's not just the Russians that are going there. The Ukrainians also moving a massive amount of their forces down to the east as well for that huge battle. And, and Fred, do we, do we know how the Russians are preparing for this offensive? Yeah, it seems as though the uh, Ukrainians uh, today said they believe that uh, part of that big Russian force that's been accumulating, of course, part of it that came here from Kiev that got beaten here is apparently training in the east of, uh, in the west of Russia um, to get ready for the fight that could happen here. But they do all also have reconnaissance units apparently on the ground in the Kharkiv region, south of the Kharkiv region, that are sort of scoping the area out while some of their other forces are already conducting strikes. But it really seems as though the Russians are trying to take a, uh, a different approach than they did here, where they really rushed in and really trying to move maybe not as fast, but probably then with way more force than they did here. Yeah, they thought they were going to be greeted with rose yep. petals. Didn't work out that way. Fred Pikin, thank you so much. Now, to our uh, conversation with the top prosecutor uh, for the International Criminal Court, to The Hague, Karim Khan. Uh, Mr. Khan visited the towns of Bucha and Borodyanka this week as part of his investigation into possible Russian war crimes. He spoke with survivors and families of murdered civilians as he pledges to get to the truth. I spoke with him earlier today. Prosecutor Khan, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. So you have been going around the country. You've been to Bucha. You've been to Borodyanka. What have you seen? Have you seen anything that surprised you? Unfortunately, uh, not. I think we have all been seeing the pictures and reading the reports um, regarding the devastation, the human cost, uh, both to property, but really most importantly to, uh, to 
civilians, uh, men, women and children. And so it was an opportunity to see firsthand, um, to verify, to try to start a process of collection. Putin is out there saying it's all fake, it's all a hoax. You're seeing it with your own eyes. What we have to do, I think the job is to separate truth from falsehood. Uh, truth always is said to be the first casualty of war. There's competing narratives, uh, there's um, allegations and counter-allegations. And I think this is why there's a role, an important role, for an independent prosecutor's office. We don't have a political agenda. We're not in favor of Ukraine and against Russia or uh, in favor of Russia against Ukraine. We're in favor of humanity. And you're not in a position right now where you are asserting the Russian military is committing horrific acts or the Russian military is committing war crimes or, as President Biden said, uh, Putin is committing genocide. That's not your role right now. You are an investigator getting facts and you're not ready right now to assign blame one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the luxury of a politician to speak in, in generalities. Um, we have to have evidence for every proposition we put forward. And it requires deliberation. It requires, of course, some urgency uh, to get to the truth. But uh, we're, we're committed to that. But, you know, the principle of Nuremberg, uh, the United States and Russia, uh, uh, as well as the other uh, victorious powers, established a principle in Nuremberg that was very eloquently put in, that crimes are not are committed by men, not abstract entities. So we're not looking at Russia or Ukraine, look at individuals. Individuals who have power, mostly men, uh, whether it's a rape or whether it's uh, a gun or whether it's a mortar or whether it's a shell or whether it's uh, a missile from an aeroplane, there are obligations. People cannot, under the laws of war, do what they want with impunity. How is it possible to go from just holding a private or a sergeant responsible versus this is systemic? They were told to do this and it goes up the ladder and you hold colonels, generals, commanders, President Putin responsible. How does that work? The important thing is, I think it's uh, nobody is above the law, nobody's beneath it. But whether you're a private uh, or a captain or a colonel or a general or a civilian superior, the basic principles apply to you. Nobody gets a jail out of free guard, nobody gets a free pass. Every individual must act with responsibility in, the, in their conduct. And there is this personal accountability. It's not a defense. Nuremberg established it. Superior orders is not a defense. It's not enough. Um, to uh, attack a civilian object and attack uh, women and children. So the reason that the Nazis were able to be tried at Nuremberg is because they were defeated, right? They lost. It is likely that however this conflict ends, Putin will still be in power. Russia is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court, neither is the United States for that matter. So how can we guarantee that there will be some sort of justice given the fact that Russia is not on board with the ICC and it's, in, it's likely that the Kremlin and all its leaders will still be standing when this conflict's over. We can't be naive about things. We need to be realistic. But the first thing's first. Collect the evidence, preserve it, analyze it, you know, make determinations based on what it shows. And those determinations can be checked by judges. Now, in terms of the uh, surrender of individuals, uh, this is an issue we've seen before. Yes, you're quite right about uh, the Allied powers uh, after the Second World War. But uh, many arrest warrants were executed in the former Yugoslavia when hostilities were uh, going on. So it requires collective will. It requires political will. It requires this sense of responsibility, not to um, you know, abdicate that responsibility over the next period. It may not be easy, but I do believe with collection, collective effort, uh, the law can be vindicated, but time will tell. And I, I take a really pragmatic view. We have to, and I have to, as the prosecutor of the ICC, do my job. Uh, judges then will you know, do their jobs and, and uh, 
check in and, and verify and make determinations that we will respect. This growing realization that a common front needs to be built based upon legality because it affects Ukraine, but it affects all parts of the world because of the rules-based system and the principles of public international law that have to be rendered much more meaningful, not to judges in their gowns or advocates uh, in the courtroom, but to the men and women and children that you see on the streets and refugee camps that are completely innocent and that suffer horrendous crimes time and time and time again. And we tend to have not only short memories, but also an absence of shame. Every year on International Holocaust Memorial Day, I read these statements from world leaders, never again, never again. And there's always a genocide going on, whether Myanmar uh, or any of the other places that you've mentioned. Um, what do you say to somebody out there who says, it's all nonsense, they say never again, and then tens of thousands of Ukrainians get massacred, and the Western powers just sit back and, you know, they send some arms, but they don't really get involved. I think it's uh, incredibly difficult. You're, you're spot on. It's a matter of shame that what you say is true, but it is. At the same time, we can't be hopeless. We can't give up hope because we have laws domestically and people commit uh, murders and a whole variety of uh, crimes. The issue should be collective will to impose these standards in practice. And it's about progress. Yes, it, the world is full of contradictions and hypocrisies and double standards, I accept that. But generally, if you look where we are today in terms of the relevance of international law and international criminal law for all its defects and shortcomings, I think objectively we're in a better place than we were you know, in uh, the 1980s or the 1990s. And I think if we keep working, if we don't give up hope but be realistic and try to improve the compliance with the law, um, we'll make progress. And utopia doesn't exist in practice. It's about trying to keep progressing in a way that is meaningful and we don't stop. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sheikh. The Russians have been attacking civilian areas throughout this invasion. We've been showing you the horrific scenes in Mariupol for weeks and the city remains under assault. So many still trapped there. You're about to hear from one woman who managed to escape as the bombs fell. That's next. We're back now live from Kyiv. Even as Russia intensifies efforts to take over the southern city of Mariupol, Ukraine says that that port town has not yet fallen. Officials say the last two remaining Ukrainian military units there have recently joined forces after risking a maneuver to link up. The port city is now a symbol of resistance, even as Russian forces reduced it to rubble. The mayor of Mariupol says 180,000 people are believed to be trapped in the town. Those who escaped offer a harrowing view of what life is like there and how dangerous it can be to even just try to leave. CNN's Ed Levandera joins us now. And Ed, you spoke with a survivor who had a truly frightening experience trying to escape. Yeah, Jake, and this was an escape that happened several weeks ago, so you can imagine about how much worse things have gotten. But this was also an escape that went horribly wrong. When the first bomb struck Mariupol, Katya Yerskaya thought her most effective weapon would be a gentle smile and the ability to calm terrified families. 
She lived in an underground shelter, coordinating relief supplies for the trapped civilians of this besieged city. So you're watching your city get bombed and destroyed, people are being killed. You decide not to leave, but to help. It's uh, horrible that animus didn't allow even children to go out from the city. Day by day, the video Katya captured showed life in Mariupol unraveling. She lost touch with the outside world. None of her family and friends outside the city knew if she was alive or dead. Life here was falling into an abyss. It was like Middle Age. Uh, it was like the Middle Ages. Yes. It's almost like you could feel yourself running out of time. There was only so much longer you could stay in Mariupol. I thought I will never go from Mariupol until the end. On March 16th, Katya evacuated. She recorded two short videos on her way out just before seeing a family walking on the side of the road, a mother, grandmother, and two young girls. So we had uh, two free places in our car and we saw this family and we decided to help them. At one of the Russian military checkpoints, they stopped in front of a soldier. And he uh, showed us go out and we began to turn on our car. And after that, he began to shoot. One of the bullets pierced the car over her head. But in the back seat was 11-year-old Milena Urolova, shot in the face. The Russians, realizing their mistake, sent the girl to a hospital. Katya, now separated, traveled on without knowing if the young girl survived, until... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. CNN found Milena in the basement of a children's hospital in eastern Ukraine after surviving life-saving surgery. For Katya, the relief is overwhelmed by the horrors of what she witnessed. I saw a lot of uh, dead people, a lot of common graves on the street, for example, in my yacht. And um, I um, started to believe uh, that they're crazy because they um, were like maniacs. They were maniacs to you? Yes. They're, they're, really, they're really crazy, like Nazists in the Second World War. After escaping, Katya remembered the videos she recorded before the Russians ravaged Mariupol. Ukrainians protesting outside the now famous theater that in a matter of weeks would be the site of one of the most grotesque bombings in this war. The theater still intact the city's buildings unscathed. She sees the peaceful faces of families and children. The video is hard to watch. Are these people alive or left in makeshift graves around the city? Katya Yerskaya doesn't know, and for her there's only one way to deal with this haunting reality. I decided that I will cry uh, only when the Ukrainian gets the victory. And Jacob, this is a reminder that the civilian crisis in the Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine still continues. We've spent the last few days reporting in rural areas, and a common sight is seeing convoys of civilian vehicles, some buses, people driving away from these Russian-occupied areas, many of them with white flags hanging from the car and signs that read children as they flee to safer areas in this country. Jake?
And while U.S. officials uh, agree that Mariupol is still contested, although the Russians certainly have the advantage and they've been pounding the hell out of that poor town, uh, the Russians are also trying to win the narrative. Russian state media airing this footage Wednesday, which allegedly shows Ukrainian Marines surrendering uh, to Russian forces. We don't know if this is real or not. What more can you tell us? Well, what we do know uh, is that there are two, there were two units, or there are two uh, Ukrainian military units fighting off the Russians there left in in that city. We were, we were uh, they, Ukrainian military reported yesterday these units had, had converged, but in in that uh, joining, um, Russian military is saying in this video, and we should be clear that you know Russia has been engaged in a high level propaganda uh, game for uh, much of of this war. CNN is not in Mariupol. We're not embedded with Russian troops. Um, but they claim to have taken more, the Russians have claimed to have, of having taken more than a thousand uh, prisoners of war for, in, in, that, in, in that city of, of Mariupol. The Ukrainian military uh, that is in the ground there did acknowledge in a statement yesterday that some Ukrainian soldiers had deserted uh, and essentially surrendered uh, in that fight. But we don't know if the extent is more than a thousand. That is a highly significant number. Um, but that is the, you know, as close as we can get to the reality of, of uh, what's going on there in that city right now. Yeah, the fog of war. Ed Levendera, thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. We want you to meet another remarkable Ukrainian ahead. This one is a pastor who is not only helping to lead others in prayer here in Kiev, he also joined in on the fight for his beloved country and is a volunteer battalion commander now. Hear his incredible story. That's next. Continuing now live from Kiev, the Ukrainian resolved to fight back against the Russian invasion seems to only be growing stronger with each day. I want to introduce you to one of the remarkable faces of this war. Oleg Magdik is a Ukrainian Protestant pastor. He's a father of two, turned volunteer battalion commander. While his wife and youngest son moved into Western Ukraine, he chose to stay behind to help train regular civilians, people who had never even held a gun before, to prepare for this fierce combat. Oleg Magdik, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Let, let me just ask you how and your you and your unit have been doing over the past few weeks. Um, hi, um, thank you for having me and giving me a chance to speak up for my country and for my people. Um, Eighty percent of my unit uh, are people uh, that have never held a gun in, in their hands in their lives. They are ordinary truck drivers and, and lawyers and you name it. And um, we've been through some intense training uh, for for a couple of weeks, and then we spent some time at the front lines north of Kiev, and that was a re- remarkable experience for most of my guys. Uh, thank God everybody's alive and no injured. Um, at the moment, we are preparing to be deployed to the south of Ukraine. Uh, and in a few days, we're going to take off and, and going to defend uh, civilians there. I'm told you have 120 people under your command and the volunteers range in age from 18 to some folks in their mid-70s. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. What do the people in the in their mid seventies are they capable? I mean, no, no offense to any seniors out there, but I'm fifty three and I don't know that I'd be capable of this. Are, are they able to keep up with you? 
yes, th this one particular guy, he's been through four wars with Russia since 1991 in, in Georgia and uh, different uh, former Soviet Republic countries. And um, actually, he's training my guys. Uh, he is sharing his experience and, and he's doing a great job. Sounds like a vital part of the team. So you posted video uh, of the trenches that you and your unit had dug. Um, what has it been like training people who have no combat experience, especially in such a short period of time? Well, for the first few days, they are, um, they are trying to um, argue with me and trying to tell why they shouldn't be doing what I'm telling them to do, like digging trenches. <laughs> but I'm telling you, after, after the first shelling, Everybody wants to dig trenches. <laughs> and while you're helping people uh, to physically prepare for battle, for the kinetic war, uh, you're also a pastor and you're also helping them mentally and psychologically and spiritually as well. Tell me about how your faith has helped you help the people around you, help your battalion. Honestly saying, I don't know what I would be doing if not if not my faith and if not, if not my relationship with Jesus, because um, um, I think that's what helps me to hold on and not, not to um, give up. And um, th this is my church at the moment. Um, I, I'm not only their commander, I'm their pastor, and um, they are asking me to pray for them now. Uh, the, the first few days, uh, I had I had to order them to pray. Now they're asking me to pray for them. And your wife, we should mention, in the western part of the country, she's helping internally displaced Ukrainians. And your youngest son uh, has also joined the Territorial Defense Force there. Um, how are they doing? What's been the impact of all of this on them? Um, my wife is my hero. Excuse me. Um, Take your time. So, so at the moment, my wife is taking care of 300 plus refugees. They're coming every single day to, uh, to the Western Ukraine from those occupied territories. And she's not only helping them with food and, and lodging, uh, she's, she's um, working with women and kids specifically uh, trying to provide psychological help to them and um, recently she took responsibility for for the uh, some elderly people that uh, that have been replaced uh, from the occupied territories so um, she's my hero she didn't want to go to uh, europe she decided to stay in ukraine and wait for the victory there. She sounds like a remarkable woman. Um, how's your son doing? Um, my son badly wants to be with me, but I told him that he has um, more important task. He has to take care of his mom. So that's what he is doing at the moment. Well, Oleg Magdi, uh, it's just been an absolute um, honor to talk to you this evening. And uh, 
I'm, I'm wishing the best for you and your beautiful family and, uh, and of course, for the people of Ukraine. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me a chance to, um, to tell everyone about what's going on. Um, thank you for being our voice. Thank you, sir. Like I said, it's my honor. Coming up, how much will this war change if Ukraine is indeed responsible for having taken out that Russian warship? Plus, the CIA's concern about Russia, Putin specifically, potentially turning to a tactical nuclear weapon. We're going to talk to a retired U.S. Army general about that next. A haunting scenario from the CIA director today about the possibility that Vladimir Putin could order the use of a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine. Take a look. Given the potential desperation of uh, President Putin and the Russian leadership, given the setbacks that they've faced so far militarily, um, none of us can take lightly um, the threat posed by a potential resort to to tactical nuclear weapons or low-yield nuclear weapons. With me to discuss is retired two-star Major General and CNN military analyst Dana Petard. He's also the author of Hunting the Caliphate. Uh, General, thanks so much for being with us. The CIA director also spoke of Putin's potential desperation. How likely do you think it is that Putin could order the use of a a tactical nuclear weapon in in Ukraine? Good morning, uh, Jake. Uh, I would hope it's unlikely, but uh, we already know that Putin has been isolated. Um, there is a sense of desperation because of the losses, uh, the Russian forces in Ukraine. Uh, but NATO and the U.S. Uh, must send an unequivocal message uh, to Russia that any use of a nuclear weapon will start a nuclear war. Even the use of a, quote, tactical, unquote, Uh, nuclear weapon um, would be considered an act of nuclear war. Russia's former president, Dmitry Medvedev, who's currently on Russia's Security Council, he made threats over the potential expansion of NATO. As you know, Sweden and Finland are interested and maybe on the path to joining NATO. Uh, Medvedev said today, if that happens, quote, it will no longer be possible to talk about non-nuclear status. how worried should would be, would be should we be? Is, is there a real escalation threat here? I don't think so in that area. I, I think it's a lame attempt to intimidate Finland and Sweden. Uh, but just the opposite is occurring. Finland and Sweden, uh, for the first time in seventy some odd years of neutrality, uh, want to join NATO. Yeah, no, not exactly a strategic brilliance um, by Putin if he wanted to have Ukraine to be allied with the, with the Russians, if he wanted uh, less of a, a NATO stronghold uh, in Europe. You say that the, the U.S. and NATO uh, need to take the strategic position and force Russia to react rather than the U.S. and NATO reacting to Russia. Explain what you mean by that. Yes. Uh, in fact, the United States and NATO... Uh, must take much more active measures. Um, again, taking the strategic initiative, uh, make make Russia react to what we do as opposed to vice versa. And there's a number of things we could be doing, uh, whether it's declaring, uh, along with the government of Ukraine, Western Ukraine as a humanitarian assistance zone. 
Uh, and that would be from east of Kiev all the way south to Odessa. Um, and that would be enforced on the ground by NATO troops and enforced in the air in a no-fly zone. Uh, that, that is one thing. Uh, also, the U.S. and NATO could also deploy special ops advisors to assist uh, the Ukrainians in employing many of the weapons that, that NATO is giving them. So they can even be better employed. Of course, when you bring special ops, they bring other enablers, uh, whether it's intelligence, whether it's logistics, uh, whether it's even airstrikes, which would be an escalation, but make Russia react to what we are doing. We can also push nations that are currently under Russia's thumb, whether it's Kazakhstan in the east, uh, Tajikistan, Georgia, even Belarus, to rebel against Russian rule. Uh, again, that will bring uh, dilemmas uh, for for Putin and Russia. Their forces are dwindling, and they're they're trying to bring forces from other areas. Uh, so there's weakness in other areas. Well, to play devil's advocate, I obviously don't have a position one way or the other. But to play devil's advocate. What you're proposing in terms of the humanitarian quarters in, in the western part of Ukraine or special operators advising and assisting would almost certainly lead to a U.S. service member being wounded or killed by Russian troops. I mean, if history is any guide and then all of a sudden what Joe Biden, President Biden has said he doesn't want, World War III. Again, I'm not sure that would cause World War III. Uh, but what it would, would reinforce something President Biden has said, is that it is a battle between um, democracy, freedom-loving nations, and autocracy. And right now what we're doing is helpful to Ukraine, but is that enough? What we want to see, ideally, is for Ukraine to win and, and Russia to go back into Russia um, and, and honor the borders of a sovereign, free nation of Ukraine. General Dana Pitard, thank you so much for your thoughts this evening. It's always good to have you on. Coming up, train lines are lifelines, especially for those trying to escape the worst of this war, especially with those who have been wounded by the Russians. We visit with Ukrainians making their escape. We see how doctors are turning some rail cars into makeshift ambulances, even hospital rooms. That's next. We're back in Kyiv, Ukraine's capital city, where thousands of Ukrainians have been traveling to on their way out west since the war started, trying to get to safety. Fighting and Russian checkpoints have made roads virtually impassable in places, flying, of course, out of the question. The safest way to get to safety, to get to the west, to get away from the Russians, is by train. Yet, as we know from incidents like last week's deadly attack at the Kramatorsk train station, even that is not truly safe. Close to 6,000 war crimes being investigated. Potentially tens of thousands massacred. And Russia repositioning for a new assault. These Ukrainians are not waiting for what's next. A week ago, we were thinking and hoping that it would stop. It will be calmer. But it didn't change. Less than a week after Russia bombed a crowded railway platform in Kramatorsk, those lucky enough to evacuate on these trains believe the ride was worth the risk. With air travel now non-existent and unexploded bombs and Russian checkpoints on the roads, trains remain the safest way to flee. 
It's not only the question of shelling, but the question of safety that some people may come and just take you away. We can't stay. Baby Maxime and his mother Marina are from Zaporizhia, but plan to wait out the war in Germany. Outside the main Lviv train station, volunteers at this booth answer questions and help coordinate transportation and safe housing in Germany, Poland, Lviv, and more. Where most want to go is back in time. We want as soon as possible to continue living as before. Vida and her husband are just two of nearly four million Ukrainians, the railway says. It has evacuated since the Russian invasion began. People say on the internet that anything can happen, even here. So we hope it will be easy. We left everything behind. Thousands and thousands of Ukrainians fleeing their hometowns come here to the Lviv train station. Uh, they try to get accommodations. They can get food here from the World Central Kitchen. There's a fire uh, over there, a wood-burning stove heating up water. People have just come with whatever belongings they can take and their loved ones just trying to get to someplace safe. Away from the crowds at a smaller train station nearby, the most fragile passengers have their own carefully coordinated welcome. Doctors Without Borders arranged this train. There were a few cars uh, with kids from an orphanage. And now, uh, in these remaining cars, there are 10 people, nine of them children, uh, almost all of them wounded in the attack on Kramatorsk. They are getting off the train uh, and getting into these ambulances. This was not the arrival they imagined when they came to the Kramatorsk railway station last Friday. But after Russians targeted the crowd on that platform, many of these passengers, these children, suffered shrapnel wounds so deep, surgery is required. Their train to Lviv is outfitted with medical equipment in each car, as well as a team of doctors and nurses. Dr. Stieg Wall-Ravens was the ER physician on board for the 24-hour journey, overseeing some complex injuries along the way. So they had actually a pneumothorax, which is um, air in between the lung and the chest. Um, was due to actually a penetrating trauma of a blast. These are the kind of wounds that normally you see in, in uh, normally one expects to see in soldiers, not in children. You expect to see that in uh, war-struck areas where uh, civilians are also close to the firing line. Pretty, pretty tough stuff to see kids hurt like that. It always remains tough, yes. He says his team has been going back and forth on these kinds of medical transports for 10 days. This group of some of Putin's youngest victims, safe for now, and headed for more care. Back at the main terminal, the trains keep chugging in and out and across the country, bringing Ukrainians from the besieged south and the east to Lviv, where they can have the small luxury of a moment to cry. We were asked by the authorities there to not show you the orphans and to not show you the kids who were so grievously injured in the Kramatorsk attack. And we honored the wishes. But I have to tell you, having been there, that was that was tough to see. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for watching us live here in Kiev, Ukraine. I'll see you tomorrow afternoon on The Lead, live from Ukraine, beginning at 4 p.m. Eastern. And please join me for State of the Union live from Ukraine this Sunday. That will begin at 9 a.m. Eastern. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.